What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. You know, for me, it became more and more clear that nonprofits don't have the scale to address, you know, the complexity of the problems that we face for the last decade or so. You know, donations to nonprofits, financial security for nonprofits has declined. And also, I've seen governments not able to make the sweeping changes that might be needed. So I really <laughs> sort of in my mid, I guess, adult career started thinking, you know, business really is the solution. When we talk about purpose, and specifically purpose-driven business, it's impossible not to talk about a few other words beginning with P. People, planet, and profit. In other words, the triple bottom line. How do we do business for good? Is it enough to simply do good, or do we need to measure our impact? When is carbon offsetting meaningful, and when is it just greenwashing? How do we weave intention as well as goal setting into our business strategy? These are the big questions I'm talking to Professor Jennifer Kuklenski about today. Jennifer is a sustainability educator, author, and policy advisor. She's also the founder of 3P Insights, a business that helps individuals and organizations improve their triple bottom line through consulting and training. We get into the weeds of carbon offsets and talk about how purpose agendas need to be measurable. We talk about the positive as well as the negative impacts the COVID-19 pandemic has had on our planet. But to begin with, we talk about her passion for social and environmental justice and how she built a career around it. I guess I've always been highly attuned to environmental and social issues. Um, Even as a young child, I would go around the house telling my mom that I was going to pray for different conflicts and things like that. Um, but I would, I would argue that I didn't really have a whole lot of knowledge on the issues until I went to college and started learning more about international issues, including issues related to social and environmental justice. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into my professorship position in academia, I started teaching business in the department of social responsibility. So that's something that makes Northland College, where I teach, um, really unique is that our business program is housed in the social responsibility department. So purpose-driven business is, you know, fundamentally a part of what we teach. I'm particularly drawn to environmental stewardship because I was raised and now live again um, in one of the most, you know, pristine regions of the U.S. And so living you know, in a place where I have incredible access to natural forest land and water bodies has really influenced my understanding of, you know, the need to protect um, the planet, but also, you know, the plants, animals, and people that, that these natural lands support. So when I started my business, there was no question that I would run it as sustainably as possible. So for me, it's it's really not about like one sustainable development goal or another. It's about doing business in a way that allows me to make a positive impact on my clients, my community, and the natural world. And so weaving in holistic sustainability, you know, in my value chain at every opportunity. And so in that way, I think I consider myself, you know, more of an impact entrepreneur than a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Um, but even as an impact entrepreneur, you know, there's still 
it, it's very driven by purpose. And for me, that purpose is to help advance the sustainable development goals through my business and help other business owners do the same. Yeah. You know, when you, when you're working with, uh, impact driven businesses or purpose driven businesses, is this a real cultural shift that we're seeing and business shift that we're seeing? Because many businesses will take on a specific purpose goal or have a, have a purpose alignment. And if you're being a cynic, you might say that this is a marketing ploy, but I really feel that, you know, certainly throughout COVID and even before, this has been a real genuine shift that businesses and people realize that we need to be much more conscious of the impact we're having on people and planet. Um, and that this is a trend moving forward for business. But what do you, what do you see? Do you see this as being trend or real movement towards a shift? You know, that's a really great question. Um, and unfortunately, the critics aren't all wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of businesses, and then I'm sure you know this in the work that you do, yeah. um, but there are a lot of businesses engaging in purpose washing. Yeah. Um, there are so many brands that have lofty, idealistic, vague purpose statements uh -huh. that they either cannot execute because it's too lofty yeah. for any one business to act in a meaning, meaningful or measurable way yeah. on that purpose or because, you know, actually executing that purpose is beyond the scope of, of their resources or capabilities. Um, so in some cases, it's unintentional purpose washing. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, there are some businesses that have drafted purpose statements with very little intent to execute yeah. on them. And, you know, when this happens, which is actually more often than, than you know, consumers might realize, um, there is a very real risk that the purpose will be seen as inauthentic marketing ploys rather than, you know, the, the reason for being for that organization. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, when we talk about how how can a business purpose actually be successful and impactful? Um, it has to be relevant for the set of customers or users with the potential to buy our goods or services. The purpose has to clearly identify whose lives you're improving in some way, yeah. large or small. Um, and that requires an important realization that as one single business, we cannot change everybody's lives yeah. and we will not change everybody's lives. So who is it, yeah. you know, that, that we're trying to improve, you know, the, the standard of living for, or, you know, what, it, what is it that we're trying to improve specifically? Yeah. And then also, you know, purpose requires a demonstration that, that your business in some unique way can create value and drive progress. So mm -hmm. how are you able to drive progress differently than, your competitors, or even some of your, you know, cooperative business partners. Um, how are you uniquely creating value? Um, this is actually something, I love this question <laughs> because it's something I cover in depth in, in one of the workshops okay. that I hosted earlier this year um, that I called Discovering Your Why. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so in that workshop, I, I mentioned, you know, a key to remember about purpose is that it is of limited use if your business cannot execute on it. Yeah. So if, if the purpose statement is so vague that we can't actually base decisions or actions on, yeah. then it really isn't going to help us in terms of, you know, business planning or strategy. And it's not going to tell our customers or audience much about us either. So, um, anything about us. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, in that workshop, I give the participants examples of different purpose statements and, you know, so many of them use the same language, the same words. You'd think their target market is exactly the same and and they could be wildly different businesses serving wildly different markets. And so I think that's where a lot of the criticism has come. To make a greener planet. (laughs) Yeah. Change the world, right? (laughs) Change the world. Make a greener planet. Um, Yeah. You mentioned um, needing to be specific and measurable earlier. Does it need to be measurable or can it just be reduction? For example, if if you're a business which has a product that's moving away from single use plastic, for example, can it just be reduction? Or do you think that businesses, if they want to align themselves to a purpose, also have a responsibility to measure the impact that they're creating? I do think businesses have a responsibility to measure the impact. You know, otherwise it's it's just a blanket statement. Yeah. Um, consumers are are looking for for those measurable goals. Um, you know, or, or measurable impact. And you know, part of the sustainable development goals, and and part of the guidance that has been given to businesses from the United Nations is to measure your impact. And so I think if if we really want to advance, you know, quality of life on earth and protect, you know, our natural environments, um, then you have to be able to measure what you say you're doing. You know, that that's part of your responsibility as a business. Um, if, if you are saying that you're a sustainable or, you know, impact-driven or purpose-driven business. And so, you know, how are you actually acting on that purpose as opposed to just saying, we're changing the world or we're changing lives or we're, you know, making an impact. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I also want to ask you a little bit about how COVID has impacted um, some of the businesses you work with um, or in wanting to engage with sustainability goals. Has there been something in the way that we've all slowed down a little bit and really had to uh, engage much more closely with our immediate communities in increasing momentum for some businesses, in really authentically engaging with sustainability goals? Or has it just been one of those things which, because of all of the other things that were hard over the past two years, just got shelved? Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, in, in my experience, I think it has been the latter. Uh, so I'll, t- I'll talk to, to both of those aspects. So, that, so there has been some progress in some areas, but there's also been some setbacks mm-hmm. Um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic slowed down some of the momentum we had in the sustainable business area before 2020. Um, and, and it's understandable in many cases, you know, businesses and other organizations that might've had, you know, sustainability, um, intentions or goals set, um, had to make some sweeping changes to keep the doors open in the late winter and spring of 2020. For some organizations, this required a complete transformation of the way they conducted business 
and may have required a considerable amount of, of monetary or time investments. So unfortunately, a lot of their sustainability programs were put on hold. And I had a number of, of clients actually who had uh, sustainability related training, you know, scheduled on the books, or we had been in conversations of, of doing some training in like later 2020. And a lot of them basically just said, you know, we need to just pause yeah. and, and assess the situation. We're still interested, but it's going to take some time. And, and interestingly, last fall, so fall 2021, I started sort of almost getting bombarded with requests okay. for training, you know, from these organizations that had kind of put them on hold. So that was encouraging to see that, you know, they didn't forget about it, um, but there were very real things that that had to take priority. You know, I mean, if you're if you're going to keep the doors open, sometimes you have to prioritize things. And as much as I hate to see sustainability put on the back burner, I did understand it. Um, but I would also say that another setback we had, you know, had to do with waste. So a lot of organizations had like waste reduction programs, you know, that that they were rolling out or that they had had in place for a while. And with the sanitation and PPE requirements, yeah, you know, the amount of waste that was created, especially if if they weren't using, you know, like reusable masks or encouraging that sort of behavior, you know, it, it was a major setback in, in terms of the amount of waste that, that was created. But with all of that said, I would say that the pandemic actually opened up some, you know, opportunities to reduce, um, especially environmental um, impact, but also increase well-being for employees, yeah. which which is a part of sustainability, yeah. right? So the, the people part of sustainability is really important. Um, and so these, you know, incredible opportunities for remote work yeah. where, you know, I, I was kind of always an advocate for either hybrid working situations or remote work. Um, in my, my work and in, in my professorship, I've taught, you know, human resources management. And, you know, there's been a lot of research for a long time that showed that remote work could be more productive if implemented properly. And so I was kind of always an advocate of that even before COVID. And there were a lot of workplaces that were already moving to that model yeah. before COVID. And, and those workplaces didn't experience, you know, nearly the setbacks that, that other workplaces didn't. But there are still managers out there who, you know, believe, it, you know, you have to be in person. You have to be sort of policing your employees, <laughs> to use that term, Um you know, so they're productive. And so those managers were forced to figure out a way to manage their yeah. workforce remotely. And and even those managers, a lot of them found, you know, that people were were more productive, but they yeah. were also happier. So there's there's another body of research that looks at the well-being of employees. And and a lot of that research suggests that most employees are actually, you know, their quality of life is a bit better with a remote or hybrid option. Yeah. Um, and so with that, we're seeing, you know, an increased tendency of hybrid or remote work um, in many different workplaces. Some economists think that it that almost every workplace that is capable of it will have some version of hybrid work yeah. um, post-pandemic. But with that, there's a lot of, of you know, reduction in environmental impact. Yeah. So aside from the well-being and the productivity pieces of it, 
you know, people aren't having to commute to work, um, less, you know, gasoline consumption um, or even electricity consumption if they have an, an EV, right? There's less damage, you know, to the roadways, which requires less repairs. There's less congestion on the roads, so there's less accidents, and there's, you know, less wear and tear on people's automobiles so they don't have to, you know, get a new automobile as quickly. Mm-hmm. So there's there's all of these things that help contribute to, you know, reducing the environmental footprint. But there's also just, you know, everyday things that that's saving, you know, resources like people don't have to wash their clothes as much when working from home and, yeah, you know, things like that. So we also don't need as many clothes. Right. Right. Yep, exactly. We don't need uh, a work wardrobe necessarily. So there's a reduction in other kinds of purchases. Yeah. yeah, there's kind of these indirect benefits. You know, it may have set us back for a little while, um, which was unfortunate but understandable. But I think in in the long term, um, the pandemic, although incredibly hard and, you know, not dismissing the hardship that people have endured, there are some some areas of light, I think, in the sustainability uh, space that we're seeing post-pandemic. Yeah, I think it's, you know, some people are saying that um, historians, when they look back at this time, are going to divide the world and, and everything about the way we engage with communities, the way we worked, the way we taught into pre-pandemic and post-pandemic ways of life. I'm definitely with you. I have always been a big fan of remote work or hybrid work. Pre-pandemic, it was because I have two young kids and I wanted more flexibility than most businesses were willing to to offer. And I'm also a huge fan of the four-day work week. And I think what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is also that because technology for remote working or distance working has improved so much, we can be so much more productive than we could have been, you know, 100 years ago when, more than 100 years ago, when the idea of a five-day work week was first um, like implemented. We can do so much more and we're also expected to do so much more in the hours of the day we have. So if we can do all of that in four days, it, you know, it, it does all of the things that you mentioned in terms of impl- improving employee well-being, improving productivity. Yeah. And I guess also lessening the impact we're having on the environment. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you bring up a good point that there, there are other, you know, wellness benefits as, associated with a work-life family balance um, that I think has received a bit more attention since people did shift to remote work. And and again, not everyone was able yeah. to, um, but for those workers who were, you know, shifted to, to a remote workplace in the pandemic, um, they were realizing that that they had more time, you know, for their family and, and for their children and for working mothers in particular, I think it, it this has been a game changer. Yeah, it's been, it's, but it's also been a game changer in two ways, right? On the one hand, it allows them flexibility they never had. But on the other hand, during lockdowns, when parents were expected to work and teach their kids at home, it became impossible. I think it was one of the biggest drivers for women leaving the workforce. Um, Right. But I also want to talk about carbon offsetting, because this is always a little bit of a bugbear for me. For me, the notion of carbon offsetting seems to be missing the point, which is about reduction. But 
But is there a way to do this responsibly? Is there a world in which we can offset the emissions of private jet travel, to take an extreme example? And what do we need to be looking out for when we buy into a carbon offsetting scheme? I know that you have one you support, and I would love to have your insights on how we can do this responsibly. Oh, carbon offsetting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I have a love-hate relationship with carbon offsetting. Um, I think this, for me to do your question justice, I think I'm going to have to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Um, So this might be a a bit of a long-winded response for you. Let's do that. I want to get into the weeds of carbon offsetting. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, I do too. So yeah, this is actually something that's been on my mind for a while. So love-hate relationship. On the one hand, you know, carbon offsetting has helped create investments in forest protection and reforestation projects, which of course is an essential piece of mitigating, you know, the negative impacts of climate change. At the same time, carbon offsetting receives a lot of warranted criticism, like you mentioned, because it has essentially given businesses, and and not just businesses, um, there are other organizations engaging in offsetting too, um, but it's given these organizations a way to feel like they're doing good or maybe market that they're doing good without actually doing what the planet really needs, which is reduction in carbon emissions. Without actually doing good. Yes. Yeah. So you were spot on, 100% agree with that. Um, So we, you know, we've seen a lot of businesses engage in offsetting without engaging in reduction. And it's not just businesses. I actually wrote a research paper a couple of years ago about the problems with carbon offsetting at colleges and universities whose state that they are striving toward or have achieved net zero. And the major findings pointed to the realization that carbon offsetting was basically disincentivizing many institutions from making real changes that would reduce their emissions. You know, you can reach net zero without making any emissions reductions at all, And I was rather shocked when I realized how many organizations have made no or very little progress on emissions reductions, but have still achieved net zero because of their offsetting programs. Mm -hmm. So the thing to remember, you know, about offsetting is that it should be the last resort. Yeah. First, we need to measure our carbon footprint, which surprisingly few organizations are actually doing, but we we actually need to know what our carbon footprint is. And second, we need to reduce our footprint. Yeah. Whatever is left after we are done reducing our footprint, because of course, sometimes, you know, this requires changes that maybe we can't make in the short term or the near term. Um, And so that's where, you know, the benefit of offsetting comes in is that, you know, we we reduce as much as we can right now, Mm And then we can offset the rest. Um, yeah. But what I've seen is organizations don't measure, yeah. right? They make no meaningful effort in measuring their carbon footprint. And they don't even bother really reducing their footprint in any meaningful way. Yeah. And they simply just engage in offsetting, um, especially tree planting schemes. And I see this a lot with small businesses. 
um, business owners really seem to love <laughs> tree planting schemes. Um, and it makes sense. It's relatively cheap to do and it's easy to promote, right? It's very tangible. Yeah, it's tangible. We can, we can simply tell our customers that we'll plant one tree for every order. And since this is measurable, we can easily, you know, promote many, how many total trees we've planted over time. And it makes for great marketing. Plus, people love trees, right? Who doesn't love a nice, healthy tree? Yeah, right. But the truth is tree planting isn't always the best solution and very often isn't done correctly. Mm -hmm. For starters, trees take a long time to mature, which means that it could be decades before that tree you planted actually absorbs enough carbon to make much of an impact. Yeah. And I think that this is another really important criticism of of carbon offsetting. Um, If you're offsetting today's emissions through tree planting, you're actually not offsetting any of your current activity because those trees, if they survive, will take several years before they absorb any meaningful amount of carbon. When I tell people this, then they say, well, let's just plant fast-growing trees. (laughs) But... (laughs) The problem here is that many tree planting schemes have resulted in monocrop forests. And um, those are, you know, forests where uh, just a singular tree has been planted repeatedly. And those types of forests can't sustain or support a healthy ecosystem. Healthy forests and healthy ecosystem require biodiversity. Yeah. Um, and, and biodiversity is also essential for tree survival because it results in better nutrient cycling, photosynthesis, decomposition, and soil creation. Rich, diverse forests store um, twice as much carbon or roughly twice as much carbon as forests with only one species. Okay. I would say if, if you're looking for a tree planting scheme for your offsetting activity, it's very important to make sure that the program prioritizes biodiversity in their reforestation efforts. Okay. With that said, more biodiversity means that there needs to be some slow growth trees, which won't capture carbon for a very long time. Yeah. I have a a carbon um, offsetting scheme that I support um, through my company. and, And I would say that for me, I'm much more drawn to forest protection offsetting programs as a as opposed to tree planting. So my company, for example, does, like I mentioned, engage in some offsetting and we support the Alto Mayo protected forest in okay. Peru. And there's basically two key reasons why I picked this particular offsetting program. Um, first, it's because it's located in the part of the world where we need forest protection the most, which is the Amazon. Yeah. Right. And, you know, anyone who works in the sustainability space knows that the Amazon is the world's largest carbon sink. And it's also one of the the fastest um, deforested regions. Um, This area in particular that that I'm supporting um, has one of the highest rates of deforestation in Peru due to widespread settlement. So more and more people are settling there. And as they settle they're they're cutting down trees. Right. The second reason why I picked this project um, is that it helps address the very real economic problems that people in this region face. Yeah. So people need to make money when they're settling in a region. And how many people make money in the Amazon, one of the best ways to make money is through logging. Yeah. 
And if there are no other opportunities, you know, who am I to say, no, you can't engage in logging in your country because I need the Amazon rainforest, you know? <laughs> um, and so I really am a fan of, of offsetting programs that support labor and, and local communities. And so with this program in particular, they, they work with the local community to create new jobs from sustainable coffee, um, ecosystem services, and sustainable agriculture more broadly rather than logging. Okay. And so they have, you know, educational programs um, to help support um, knowledge growth on sustainable forest management and sustainable, um, you know, agriculture and so in this way, the program is, you know, helping conserve the forests that already exist, which is capturing carbon right now and yeah. which we currently <laughs> depend on, Yeah. while also helping pave the way for financial independence for local farmers. Um, so doing good for people and the planet is really important for me in yeah. an offsetting scheme. Um, another reason why I like this project, and I think this is important, um, if if you're looking into offsetting programs, um, is that it is verified by, by several reputable organizations. It's yeah. verified by the Climate Community and Biodiversity Alliance, mm-hmm. Conservation International, and the Verified Carbon Standard, or VERA. So I, I think if I circle back to yeah. your question, <laughs> um, I would say that it is possible to offset your emissions in an impactful way, Yeah. but the first step is always to measure and reduce your emissions. Yeah. So I would say that if someone is offsetting private jet travel, um, that's not really meaningful because perhaps they could look for all you know alternative flying solutions that would reduce yeah. the footprint of their flight activity overall. Right. If it's not really meaningful to try to offset private jet travel, then it becomes greenwashing or purpose washing, I suppose, to try to do so, to travel privately and then you know, rely on an offsetting scheme is a little bit like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. But since we are talking about greenwashing, let's talk about COP26, because isn't that what Greta Thunberg called it? A global greenwashing festival? Uh, I, like many people, I suppose, felt pretty disheartened afterwards, particularly as a parent, I think. I worried about the kind of world we were leaving behind for our children, but also if there was anything meaningful that I as an individual could do. But how are you feeling as someone who's really working boots on the ground in this space? Do you still feel reasons to be hopeful? Um, well, I think for, for me, I, I have to, <laughs> right? Um, I, I yeah. mean, I think that's a really great question. It, it's certainly not to say that I don't get um, disheartened sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that I don't have my own, you know, eco anxiety, right. Or things like that. Um, but I think if we don't keep hope, then what's the point? I would say that there's two things, you know, in particular that, that keep me, um, hopeful, you know, one is that the, the data is showing that more and more people, are becoming aware of, you know, the world's most pressing social and environmental issues. Um, You know, if we just look at the sales of sustainably marketed goods over the past few years, you know, they are the fastest growing in in almost every industry. 
But, but I look at that and I really, you know, see the good. I mean, even with, you know, the, the conflict in, in Ukraine, I, I, I'm just like so humbled by what I've seen on, you know, social media, but not even that in my own community that, you know, I've seen everyone is talking about it, right? Everyone wants to do something, at least in my circle. You know, that's really humbling too on, on sort of the social issue side. And that's just one of the most recent, right, um, social issues that, that the world is facing. I mean, there's <laughs> so many examples of, you know, communities um, rallying sort of around the cause. Um, and I think that is the second reason why I'm hopeful. Yeah. Right? I, I look at humanity. I look at my family, my community, right? And all the good being done in the world. I, I look at the community of purpose-driven and impact entrepreneurs that I've created through my company and that I've mm-hmm. built, you know, through the work that I do. And I see how much they care. And I know that we're on the right track. Yeah. Um, although if we watch the news regularly, it can sometimes feel otherwise. But Unfortunately, good news doesn't get as much uh, yeah. reach as bad news. And so, you know, I, I try to keep the perspective that, you know, there really is a lot more good happening than than we realize. And and I think that that keeps me hopeful. Yeah. But you mentioned Ukraine, and I want to talk about that for a bit, because in Ukraine, you've seen businesses abandoning Russia en masse. It's not just governments imposing sanctions. These are private entities imposing sanctions. And for ethical reasons, I feel that there's been a push for businesses for the sake of their existing customers to actually be doing, making ethical changes, even if it would negatively impact some of their business. I mean, Russia is a big market for some of these luxury brands that have pulled out. If you look into the future, if you sort of crystal ball gaze for a moment, where do you see the real change coming from in meeting sustainable development goals? Is there going to be more of a spearheading coming from the private sector? Um, Absolutely. Something that a, a lot of my audience and a lot of my network doesn't realize about me is that, um, you know, I started my adult career in government and political affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first degree was in, you know, the, the College of Political Science, um, looking at international issues. My first master's degree was in international security, um, although that is where I really started shifting my focus from, like, conflict security to um, climate security. Mm-hmm. I um, served in the military for 11 years, and so I have this kind of expansive part of my adult life that that really was rooted in government action. And, you know, for me, it became more and more clear that nonprofits don't have the scale yeah. to address, you know, the, the complexity of the problems that we face. And their scale is declining, you know, unfortunately, donations, although they've gone up a bit in the pandemic for all over the last decade or so, you know, donations to nonprofits, financial security for nonprofits has declined. And also, I've seen governments not able to make the sweeping changes that might be needed, um, yeah. which makes sense. You know, yeah. if, if you have a democratic government, there yeah. there is a plurality of interests, and that plurality is a healthy, good thing. It's what keeps democracy going. But... With that plurality, right, 
momentum slows down because you do have to satisfy a number of different interest groups and come to consensus and and consensus can can take longer. So I really <laughs> sort of in my mid I guess adult career started thinking, you know, business really is the solution. Um, it makes sense for me. My, my parents are business owners. They've owned and operated a business for over 40 years. I grew up around the business community. So kind of coming back to business uh, made mm-hmm. sense. But the real reason, you know, that I've shifted to this focus is because I, I believe that business is where the real change is going to happen. Business is where scale is possible. You know, the, the scale, the reach, the audience that businesses have um, if if they do you know business for good, they can really make an impact. Um, and I think that even with you know the UN Sustainable Development Goals, this this has become quite clear. You know, an entity like the United Nations that historically has you know very much been focused on government mm-hmm. action is now realizing that business is is sort of the key partner. That is not to diminish the importance of government. Um, you know, government still plays a role. It's not to diminish nonprofits. Nonprofits are doing amazing work. But without business on board, there is no possible way we can achieve the sustainable development goals. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be these three arms working together, business, the not-for-profit sector, and government hand in glove with one another. So, Given your very interesting career trajectory and also life trajectory and the work you're doing now, what does purpose mean to you? And how do you define that for your own work life? So, um, you know, purpose for me is is very much rooted in sort of what the, the academic research shows that it is in mm-hmm. business. Okay. Um, you know, so as an academic, I... I don't like to sort of create my own definitions for things. Um, I like to look at, you know, what does it actually mean in practice? Yeah. Um, which I think is important for business owners, right? Yeah. Um, to understand how how definitions influence how they actually practice things. Um, so for me, purpose is the reason your organization exists. Um, it's founded on what organizations, whether it's, you know, business or um, nonprofits or even government, yeah. right, what they do to best advance or improve life on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just, you know, there are some um, people out there who will say, well, every business has a purpose, you know, even if it's just to to earn a profit, yeah. uh, you know, that's a purpose. And, and that's true, right, mm-hmm. to some extent. But in the sustainable business world, um, purpose, right? Purpose-driven business has come to mean something more. Yeah, which means you know you're looking at how your organization can improve, you know, people's lives, improve ecosystems, protect natural spaces, yeah. conserve natural resources, protect wildlife, you know, or any other aspect of social or environmental justice. So, so it really is, you know, purpose beyond profit, like you hear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, purpose is it's what you're doing for someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So I need to make a profit to keep the doors open for my business. But purpose is what you're doing for someone else. Yeah. And I think that the companies that excel at purpose um, move beyond, you know, just a motivational statement. Mm-hmm. They reinvent themselves holistically yeah. based on their purpose. And they weave that purpose into their business DNA 
And then finally, like we talked about, they measure their yeah. impact, right? Um, there's no purpose to yeah. have a purpose if you can't say that you're actually somehow yeah. achieving it. And so that's, I think, sometimes a lost piece of purpose-driven business um, to actually be able to say, well, this is the impact we're making, yeah. right, um, it towards our deeper yeah. purpose. No, for sure. So you've talked about the difference between goal setting and intention setting in your work. And that's also kind of related to your definition of purpose. You know, it's it's not just intention setting. It's clear, measurable goal setting as well, and a pathway to achieving that. But how can you use both to achieve different outcomes? I love this question. <laughs> so um, as you mentioned, I I do encourage intention setting in business to help achieve our goals and our you know desired outcomes. Um, but I think it's helpful to start with understanding you know what goals are and why they work in business. And setting goals works so well in business because it's part of a recognized cognitive process of planning and analyzing, which of course is essential to, you know, strategic Mm -hmm. business. Um, Setting goals gives you a sense of control on how you're going to move from where you are now to where you want to be. And, you know, cognitive research shows that our brains love that you know, our brains actually reward us with feel-good hormones like dopamine each time we achieve one of our goals. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. um, it's So I actually have another um, impact article where I talk about some of that research and have some links to um, some of that, you know, psychology research on goal setting. So definitely if you or your listeners are interested, um, check out, you know, our impact articles on 3P Insights. Yeah. Um, And one of the things I talk about is, you know, what happens when you don't achieve your goals? And the Mm -hmm. cognitive literature suggests that, you know, those good feelings become negative. We might begin to feel like a failure. For some people, falling short of a big goal causes frustration, disappointment, um, even reduced self-confidence. And there's some research that shows that falling short of our goals can, in some cases, prevent us from setting high goals in the future. So, you know, My thought is, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, right? Life happens, things get in the way. You might even change your mind and decide to pivot Mm -hmm. mid-year. And this is healthy, right? It's healthy in life. It's healthy in business. Adaptability and flexibility are the keys to resilience while also keeping us grounded in our objectives and deeper purpose. And so the example that I like to give when I discuss, you know, how to do this is, you know, imagine one of your goals is to gain new clients. Right. Right. Um, In business, right. And I teach business. And so we (laughs) always say, well, if you have a goal, you know, don't just say gain new clients, but, you know, maybe gain 10 new clients, right. We need to be able to measure it. So gain 10 new clients. Um, Setting intentions to gain new clients is different, right. And so setting intentions allows us the ability to say, well, instead of gaining 10 new clients this year, we might say, I want to build and nurture new relationships this year. Yeah. Which is a much sort of deeper understanding of, of the purpose of, of gaining those clients in the first place. Yeah. Right. It, it involves the process of how you gain clients, mm-hmm. right? By building and nurturing new relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't 
pressure us to attract exactly 10 new clients. It doesn't limit us to 10 new clients for that matter. Yeah. Right. And it gets to the deeper purpose for many of our purpose and impact driven businesses. Yeah. That we want to connect with people. Mm -hmm. We want to raise awareness about the problems that we want to help solve. And we want to cultivate relationships that can help us make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I love that because also when you talk about, you know, developing and nurturing new relationships, it's different from finding clients because a, a, a potential client is just anyone who can pay for your product or service. But when you're talking about developing a new relationship, you're talking about finding a like-minded person, which is a much deeper kind of connection um, that you might have to a potential client and, and somebody who you could build a long-lasting business relationship with, somebody who your business could really impact. And yeah, it it trickles down so, so nicely. I really like that because I previously sometimes saw intentions as being a little bit uh, lofty and goals as being much more actionable. But when you combine them together, mm-hmm. it's um, it's very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing, you know, the, the intentions can help you achieve your goals, right? Yeah. But it's just kind of a different way of looking at it. Yeah, a really useful way of looking at it. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. We've really deep dived into quite a few areas from how to make impact meaningful to remote work and carbon offsets. This has been really an amazing chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. I love listening to your podcast. So I um, was you. thrilled when when you reached out to have me be a, be a guest. So um, thank you. Thank your listeners for caring about this stuff. And uh, I look forward to being in touch. Thank you, friends, so much for tuning in today. As you can probably tell, Jennifer is a fountain of knowledge on such a wide range of topics relating to sustainability and business. So if you were taking notes during the episode or wanted to take notes during the episode and want to know more, I've linked to Jennifer's business, 3P Insights, in the show notes, and you can also find out how to work with her as well as access some of the research that she talked about in this episode. You can also email her at jennifer at 3pinsights.com. If you are a business owner or an impact entrepreneur, I hope this episode has helped you think about how you can scale your impact. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.